episode 36.5 of Have a Blessed Gay, your spiritual comedy podcast. I'm your holy host, Tyler Martin. And yeah, point five, the other half of the episode. We can now finally feel complete and whole again! <laughs> Okay, (laughs) but genuinely, I'm really stoked to continue into part two. I love history so damn much, and the history that has led to modern homophobia is intensely fascinating, and I'll echo what I said from part one, which is, you don't have to be religious, you don't have to be Christian and or Catholic to benefit from this knowledge because this history has shaped our current society. And if we want to fight sexism and anti-LGBTQ plus hate and legislation, which there is plenty of, especially if you are in Arkansas right now, then we gotta know where the hell it comes from. Now, if you haven't listened to part one yet, Pause this right here, go listen to part one, then bring your cute little tush back to listen to part two. In this second part, I am tackling the relationship between homosexuality and the Catholic Church throughout history. The societies in which inform the church, secret gay organizations within the Vatican, yeah, you heard that right, and the devastating child abuse that has taken place. Just so everyone knows, yeah, there is still comedy throughout, there is, but this is definitely a heavier episode. And as a warning, just know that I will be discussing rape and abuse from history. Not anything explicit, but I will be talking about it nevertheless. Y'all better drink some H2O, you H2 hoes, say some mantras, and do a little dance, cause we're about to go in hard. Let's dive into the gritty, yet bizarre, history of the Catholic Church and homosexuality. Honey, we're putting the T in homosexuality. Can I get an amen? <laughs> This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, the leading provider of online counseling. Y'all, the world is crazy and mental health is important. Some might even call it spiritual. I personally use BetterHelp myself and absolutely love what they're doing. BetterHelp makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. So if you're struggling emotionally, battling anxiety, or you can't stop crying after an episode of Queer Eye, BetterHelp can be there for you anytime, anywhere. Go to my personal link at BetterHelp help.com slash blessed gay to check it out and get what 10% off the best part is you don't even have to leave your house they offer four ways to speak with a licensed counselor video calls phone calls real-time chat and direct messaging all counselors have been qualified and certified by their state's professional board In other words, you're not talking to a lobster dressed in human clothes. They're legit. All you gotta do is go to my link at betterhelp.com slash blessed gay and begin the questionnaire to match you with a therapist who is uniquely qualified to serve your needs. How sexy. 
It's super duper easy and your match within 24 hours or less. BetterHelp has a monthly subscription rather than paying per session, which makes it cheaper. But if finances are still a concern, financial aid is available for those who qualify. Get counseling, improve your life, and help this podcast out in the process by going to betterhelp.com slash gay. Sign up today and get 10% off. That's betterhelp.com slash gay. If we did not have misogyny, we would not have homophobia. Not in the way we understand it today, anyway. Homophobia exists because misogyny exists, because we have a patriarchal society. It is a direct result and byproduct. No one can be homophobic and believe in gender equality. Let that sink in. I found it really intriguing that in Bridgerton on Netflix that they were like, yeah, fuck racism. Let's flip the script. It has no place here. But homophobia, on the other hand, yeah, we'll keep that. (laughs) However, the reasoning is quite simple. The story is constructed around misogyny. We have a very binary gender-based society within the show. And in a world with such intense gendered discrimination, homophobia will always be a result. So it had to be in the show. And this is a crucial point to today's episode. So, so, so much research, y'all. For this episode, my main sources are a wonderful Vanity Fair article by Michael Joseph Gross, an article from The Atlantic by Alexander Abad Santos, an article from Garstang Museum of Archaeology by Christopher Bebbington, an article by Beth Daly, John Boswell's book Christianity, Social Tolerance, and Homosexuality, a Times article by Kara Cooney, a Cambridge essay called Sodomy in 18th Century France by Jeffrey Merrick, The World Encyclopedia, and last but certainly not least, Wikipedia. <laughs> Seriously drowning in research, y'all. And that's just the stuff I'm using in this episode. It's been tedious figuring out what to focus on because there is so much. But let's begin with the most basic, the Christian Bible. Of the 35,527 verses in the Catholic Bible, only seven scriptures are sometimes said by bigoted, uneducated people to be about homosexuality, even though the word homosexual was not put into the Bible until 1946. I will have an entire episode dedicated to those passages at some point, so I don't care to get into it much here. But it is important to note that Roman Catholicism did not officially establish the canon of the Bible until the Council of Trent in 1546, and the current concepts of homosexuality were not in that Bible, just like modern concepts of marriage were not in that Bible. Feminism and equal rights for women were not in that Bible. Why the Bible uplifts slavery. The list goes on and on. So for this episode, just know that the Christian Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And it never did. Well, not until 1946 anyway. And what's interesting, the Bible places as little emphasis on same-sex acts as 
the early church did. This is a cool, interesting, and somewhat eerie aspect of looking back in history. Early church leaders were not super concerned about punishing homosexuals. In both theologies and in church laws, there's not really mention regarding homosexuality before the late 12th century, and that's a pretty big deal. The closest thing found to condemning homosexuality would not be specific to homosexuality, but sex in general. For example, instead of labeling all homosexual acts as sinful in the eyes of God, ancient Christians were concerned about excess of behavior that might separate believers from God. Remember from part one, purity culture was where it was at. If you were truly the most holy, then you were celibate. They used virginity as a religious weapon, something that is still done to this day. And that comes from the philosophy of dualism, which is the philosophy that separates the physical from the spiritual. So the idea we have a physical body, but also a soul that is separate from our physical being, giving us a dualistic identity. From this concept came the idea that there are good and evil forces, typically the physical being the gateway to evil, whereas the spirit is the gateway to goodness, which is why they said being celibate was more holy. Less distractions, you know? Less opportunity to be quote-unquote evil. And for those of us who grew up in churches, I'm sure you've heard something like that. The world is full of sin. Our bodies are inherently sinful. The ways of the world! Yada, 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 yada. But didn't it kind of scare the shit out of you? It did me. And that's the goal. This scare tactic was extremely influential in the early church. And I think it's safe to say it's still pretty influential in our current day. But that's just a concept. And again, it wasn't against the gays, it was against pleasure in general. However, even when literature, Catholic or other religious texts, began to surface regarding homosexuality, it was typically not the sex act itself that was the issue, but some consequence of the act. And no, I'm not talking about walks of shame or being the hot gossip at the club, but more like how participating in an act might violate social norms, such as gender hierarchies. Social norms dictated that men be dominant and women be passive. Remember, homophobia exists because misogyny exists. So, being a hungry, gaping power bottom wasn't necessarily a coveted title as far as society was concerned, nor was simply being a woman. Let's look at our ancient world, ancient Rome, Greece, and Egypt. Rome has a rich history of homoerotic art and literature. Thank you, Romans. We love to see it. Their conception of same-sex relationships, specifically between men, hinges around a traditional viewpoint of masculinity and femininity, aka a gendered binary, aka placing men on a higher level than women, aka misogyny. However, male same-sex relationships were generally accepted amongst Rome but only as long as a citizen was in the dominant role, typically meaning the top or the one that penetrated. 
Now, this honestly seems like a they-said-they-said kind of situation. Like, whose job is it to go around and keep track of who is actually the top and who is actually the bottom? And how the hell do I get that job? Not shockingly enough, the men who took on the bottom, or quote-unquote feminine role, were generally slaves, prostitutes, entertainers, or just men with lower social status known as infamia. They were technically free men, but not afforded the rights and protections of the citizenry. For free men to allow themselves to be penetrated threatened their sexual integrity and masculinity. That is some toxic masculinity right there. But again, there were no monitors of sex, so it is a common thought that the wealthier people in these relationships would say they were the dominant person, even if they truly were not and the poorer person would have to go along with it for society's sake. Now, female same-sex relationships in Rome were generally less talked about, most likely because females were considered lesser than. So, you know, why write about them? But what is written about them, it seems like there really wasn't much negativity surrounding it. Now, let's look at Greece. Similarly, the ancient Greek society was not an equal one. Citizenship was an obstacle to freedom, and those who were not counted as citizens, for example, women, children, and slaves, they did not have the same rights or social esteem extended to the citizenry. In this society, there was a considerable amount of same-sex relationships between males very similar to what was happening in Rome. Someone of a higher status was someone of a lower status, or without a status at all, also a very gendered and misogynistic society. However, here in Greece, they found an even easier loophole to this problem regarding class, masculinity, and femininity. A lot of same-sex relationships were couched in the terminology of pederasty, with an older male taking the role of a teacher, and a younger male, usually in his teens, taking the role of a student. Pederasty had its own complex social-sexual etiquette and does not reflect the modern understanding of homosexual relationships in the least, but it was how they were able to get around the same issues experienced in Rome. How do you claim to be masculine and let some guy fuck you up the ass? Answer, apparently you just gotta say you're his teacher. For females, on the other hand, sorry ladies, but yet again, not much is documented. There is, however, Sappho, a female poet from the island of Lesbos, who wrote many love poems addressed to women. Sappho is thought to have written close to 12,000 lines of poetry on her love for other women. Of these, only about 600 lines have survived. But as a result of her fame and the rarity of outward female-to-female -female lovin', she and her land have become emblematic of love between women. Which, if you haven't caught it yet, is where the word lesbian comes from. Island of Lesbos, Lesbos, Lesbians. Okay, yeah, you get it, you get it. Now, Egypt is a little trickier. Yes, they had gods that were not heterosexual. Yes, they had a shit ton of homoerotic art. But actual literature that has lasted and been recorded regarding homosexuality is not that much. But it's not like we have a ton from that time period about any given subject. 
Probably the most famous case study regarding Egyptian homosexuality is the tomb of Numhotep and Nienknum, two overseers of manuscripts in the palace of King Nizer. The two men were buried together in a joint tomb at Saqqara and have been considered by many scholars to be the first recorded same-sex couple in history. The major and fascinating difference here is that there were women in power. At least six women rose up as the highest decision makers in Egypt, not counting dozens of others who acted as queen regents or high priestesses or influential wives. Ancient Egypt allowed more females into power in the ancient world than any other place on earth. So then, was it not sexist or patriarchal? The answer is a deflating, yeah, it was. Though a high number of women in positions of power is often seen as a marker of progress in governments and corporations, the history of ancient Egypt shows us that what matters is not the number of women in power, but what they do with that power, what they are encouraged and allowed to do with that power once they get there. I think this line from the Times article by Kara Cooney sums it up really nicely. She wrote, For the Egyptian system of divine kingship, women were actually the best choice to maintain the status quo, because their caretaking for family could be so easily turned into protection of the patriarchy itself. Interesting, right? And I think we even see some of that in today's society. Because we know the patriarchy remained intact, we can assume some form of homophobia did too, but it does look like it may have been more relaxed and nuanced than that of Greece and Rome. Understanding how these societies, along with the Catholic Church, thought of marriage, what they thought of sex, and what they thought of gender are crucial pieces to a very complex puzzle. All of this is necessary knowledge to take with us as we embark on the Catholic Church's history, specifically with homosexuality. From the beginning, the Catholic Church has been led by men and has been extremely sexist. Therefore, it has been inherently homophobic, but not in the way it is today. Remember from part one that when the church began, marriage was different. People didn't really marry for love. It was a lot of arranged marriages and marriages for survival. It wasn't romanticized like it is now. So the fact that there were not too many homosexual marriages doesn't really mean all that much because marriage wasn't sought after for the same reasons. The main struggles LGBTQ plus people faced were surrounding class, sexism, and consent. Rape culture was thriving in ancient Greece and Rome of both men and women. However, women were seen as lesser than, so that wasn't much concern to anyone at the time, unfortunately. What was more concerning to them was male rape, primarily because it was so degrading to be seen as quote-unquote feminine. Now, that's super problematic for several reasons, but here we are. Welcome to humanity. The Didache, also known as the Lord's Teaching through the Twelve Apostles to the Nations, 
is a brief anonymous early Christian treatise dated to the late 1st or early 2nd century. The text is all about Christian ethics, like a how-to-be-a-Christian kind of book. The Didache is considered the first example of Christian church orders, and is similar in several ways to the Gospel of Matthew, but scholars believe both texts originated in very similar communities, so that makes sense. The work was considered by some church fathers, ugh, and I hate using that term, but it's fitting, to be a part of the New Testament. However, in the end, it was not accepted into the canon. Get out of here! The text was split into three main sections dealing with Christian ethics, then rituals like baptism and Eucharist, and lastly, a section regarding the church as an organization. But why I bring this text up is because there is a clear written beginning of how the modern-day Catholic Church has misinterpreted ancient texts, even purposefully lying to the public. Within the treatise, included is a list of commandments, and one of them reads, you shall not corrupt boys. This is a direct message against pederasty at the time, against men who were of good status using that to take advantage of others, which is great, right? That's completely how it should be. They didn't say they were against homosexuality, just the rape and abuse that was happening with boys. And for hundreds and thousands of years, that's how people use this text, was to stop rape and abuse not homosexuality. So keep that in mind. We're not talking about homosexuality. We're talking about rape and abuse. Passages surrounding abuse have been mistranslated and misused when referring to the modern LGBTQ community, which is why we are talking about it. God, this is heavy. Okay, let's do it. Ecumenical councils were conferences attended by ecclesiastical dignitaries, where they would settle matters of church doctrine and practice. The early 14th century council of Elvira was the first church council to deal with the issue of male rape directly. They excluded anyone from Holy Communion who had sexual intercourse with a boy. Later, in the 6th century, the Greek chronicler John Malalas recorded that a certain Isaiah, the Bishop of Rhodes, and Alexander, the Bishop of Diopolis, had been punished for pederasty practices. Isaiah was tortured severely and exiled, while Alexander had his genitals amputated and was paraded around the city to humiliate him. Very Game of Thrones, yeah? The matter was also dealt with at the Council of Paris in 829. In Canons 34 and 69. <laughs> 69. Okay, someone's clever. These went beyond Elvira in explicitly endorsing the death penalty for quote-unquote sodomy, a word that started being circulated around that time. But what did sodomy mean exactly at the time? Today, we think of it as anal sex, booty play, come in through the back door, please, the musical rent. To sodomy is between God and me, to But, like so many words in the world, their meanings have evolved. Originally, the word encompassed a group of quote-unquote sins, which included masturbation, bestiality, non-vaginal intercourse, oral, and anal sex, and that was the same for everyone, hetero, homo, any kind of person, so it was not explicitly anti-gay. And lastly, coitus interruptus, 
which is where a person with a penis pulls out of a person with a vagina in order not to get them pregnant. Pleasure was bad. Do not even think about enjoying sex. So the only reason for sex was to procreate. Otherwise, it was seen as a waste of semen, which is why masturbation, oral, anal, and pulling out was thought to be a sin. Don't waste that yummy, yummy sperm, am I right? Or am I right? <laughs> I think I'm right. Clergy were supposed to be celibate, but of course, that is unrealistic, and they started masturbating the house down, which was considered sodomy. And a funny thing to note, for all the bigoted straight people out there who refer to the term sodomy meaning anti-gay, well, have you ever masturbated? Because if so, you're at the same sin level as homosexuals, baby. Have you ever received or given oral sex? Because if so, you're at the same sin level as a homosexual, baby. Have you ever participated in anal sex? Yes, 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 even with a person of the opposite sex. Have you ever used a condom or any kind of birth control? If so, guess what? You're at the same sin level as homosexuals, baby. Take that and suck on it. Damn it, I hate hypocrisy. Especially when the hypocrites are so uneducated and don't dress well. <laughs> That's really the worst. At least look good as you're being an evil dick, you know? Credited for much of the Catholic Church's homophobia is Philo the Hellenistic Jewish philosopher. Yes, he was Jewish, but his teachings were used by early Jewish Christians and have been not so lovingly mistranslated ever since. Philo was an original. He used allegory to harmonize Jewish scripture with Greek philosophy, something that hadn't really been done on a grand scale before him. But in doing so, his writings were, and are, often misunderstood. He is known for describing the inhabitants of Sodom in an extra-biblical account. Again, allegorical and completely fictitious, but here it is. As men, being unable to bear discreetly a satiety of these things, get restive like cattle and become stiff-necked, and discard the laws of nature, pursuing a great and intemperate indulgence of gluttony, and drinking and unlawful connections. For not only did they go mad after other women, and defile the marriage bed of others, but also those who were men lusted after one another, doing unseemly things and not regarding or respecting their common nature. And though eager for children, they were convicted by having only an abortive offspring. But the conviction produced no advantage, since they were overcome by violent desire. And so by degrees, the men became accustomed to be treated like women, and in this way engendered among themselves the disease of females and intolerable evil. For they not only, as to effeminacy and delicacy, became like women in their persons, but they also made their souls most ignoble, corrupting in this way the whole race of men as far as depended on them.
So Philo, Mr. The Disease of Females, is sexist to the max, yeah, not shocking, because homophobia only exists when sexism does, right? Although not really at the time it was written, this fictitious untrue story of Sodom paved the way for homophobia to emerge hundreds of years later down the road. So thanks Philo, you dumb bitch. As we get into the Middle Ages, rules regarding sodomy started popping up more and more. But really, they were meant for clergy. They slowly started being adopted by clergy, and then preached by clergy to audiences. If I have to do it, then so do you, motherfuckers. The problem was, and is, that a lot of clergy have a god complex. It's the same as politicians, it's the same as police officers. Often people who are interested in ministry are interested in dictating how people should live their lives. Not always, but I'd assume the majority of the time. This started a snowball effect, because the main reason rulings regarding sodomy began to spread wider was because clergy began abusing their power, and specifically having sex with minors or people who looked up to them like that guy who was castrated and paraded around. Because of people like him, who were a part of the church but also a part of a society that deemed pederasty okay, he lived a dual existence, something we see a lot in Catholicism's history, preaching one thing and doing another. Another form of the dualism philosophy. But we'll come back to dualism later. Now, buckle up, because we have to skip way ahead in time. Oh! Although homosexuality was not indirectly discussed at the 16th century Council of Trent, it did nevertheless commission the drawing up of a catechism which stated, Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor sodomites shall possess the kingdom of God. There is much debate about the translation of the word effeminate, and even if it is a good translation, what that really means, but really all of the reasons are sexist as hell, so it's just not good in general. Neither the First Vatican Council nor the Second Vatican Council directly discuss the issue of homosexuality. There just isn't really any discussion of homosexuality as we know it today until pretty recently. But damn, when it started popping up, we get some juicy drama, honey. In 1976, Pope Paul VI became the first pontiff in modern history to deny the accusation of homosexuality. In January 1976, he published a homily, a commentary that follows a reading of scripture typically, called Persona Humana, Declaration on Certain Questions Concerning Sexual Ethics, that outlawed premarital and extramarital sex, condemned homosexuality, and forbade masturbation. In response, writer Roger Parafet, who had already written in two of his books that Paul VI had engaged in a longtime homosexual relationship, repeated his claims in an interview with a French gay magazine. When reprinted in Italian, this interview brought the rumors to a wider public and caused quite an uproar. Parafet 
asserted that Paul VI was a hypocrite who had participated in a long-term sexual relationship with a movie actor, Paolo Carlini, who had played a small part in the Audrey Hepburn film Roman Holiday. More like him and the Pope had a holla gay, am I right? Okay, someone needs to stop me. Anyway, the rumors faded, but have resurfaced periodically here and there ever since. In 1994, Franco Bellagrandi, a former Vatican Honor Chamberlain and correspondent for the Vatican newspaper, El Salvatore Romano, alleged that Paul VI had been blackmailed and promoted fellow homosexuals to positions of power within the Vatican. In 2006, the newspaper El Espresso confirmed the blackmail story based on the private papers of Police Commander General Giorgio Mainz. Now... This all seems very questionable and too empathetic toward the Pope, in my opinion, but here is where it gets even juicier. The Pope after him was Pope Benedict, who very abruptly resigned. It was said because of his age and health, but a lot of people don't believe that. At the same time, coincidentally, he was facing many accusations, and one of them, well, in February of 2013, the largest Italian daily newspaper, La Repubblica, reported that a quote-unquote gay lobby might be operating inside the Vatican. Okay, can we just pause here for a hot sec? A gay lobby operating inside the Vatican. For those who do not know, a lobby in this way means a group of people who are seeking to influence politicians or public officials. Like a gay mafia in the Vatican, okay? It feels homophobic, honestly, but also it's the badass concept of a gay powerhouse group secretly occupying the Vatican, which, like, how cool, but again, in a bad way, in a, in a total, total bad way, right? But, I mean, it kind of makes sense. Is there anything gayer than the Vatican? Grandiose wardrobes, gaudy decor, little secret meetings where you get to gossip, at a disco ball, some cheap lights, and boom, that's any gay club in Hell's Kitchen. Funny enough, too, they both have glory holes. Glory, glory, hallelujah, am I right? <laughs> okay, actually, though, this gay lobby thing is wild. A secret gay society in the Holy See. Like, could it be real? What's bizarre is, it could be. There are tons of resources that have confirmed it over the years, and credible resources. Months after the initial article was published, another leak of confidential information brought the subject of a gay lobby back into the news. Someone took notes during what was meant to be a private meeting between the Latin American church leaders and the new pope, Pope Francis. He is quoted saying, The gay lobby is mentioned, and it is true. It is there. We need to see what we can do. Like, what the actual hell, y'all? Not only are there countless reports of this, but even the Vatican's response was very weird. They said, neither the Cardinal's Commission nor I will make comments to confirm or deny the things that are said about this matter. Let each one assume his or her own responsibilities. We shall not be following up on the observations that are made about this. 
they wouldn't deny it? Like, what is happening? It's so fascinating, but also, they were like, yeah, even if it is true, we're not gonna do anything about it. Like, what the fuck, Vatican? The term gay lobby sounds pretty intense. I picture some terrifying group like the Illuminati, but you know, like super fierce and fabulous. Illuminati, hey! <laughs> However, to clarify yet again, the gay lobby in question is really much simpler than that. It's thought that at the Vatican, a significant number of gay prelates and other gay clerics are in positions of great authority. They may not act as a collective, but are aware of one another's existence. Though the number of gay priests in general, and specifically among the Curia in Rome, is unknown, the proportion is much higher than in the general population. Between 20 and 60% of all Catholic priests are gay, according to one estimate cited by Donald B. Cousins in his well-regarded book, The Changing Face of the Priesthood. In 2010, there was a straight journalist that pretended to be gay and acted as a honeypot to entrap gay priests in various sexual situations, and he did it for about a month long. Honestly, it sounds like something I would love to do. Flirting while bringing down a corrupt institution? Uh, sign me up. If I ever had a calling, my gosh, that is it. <laughs> the Cardinal Vicar of Rome was given the task of investigating this, but the priest fates that were involved are unknown and quite hidden. Interesting, right? But tales of corrupt gays in the Vatican have been told for more than a thousand years. Pope John VII, who reigned from 955 to 964, was accused of having sex with men and boys and turning the papal palace into a whorehouse. <laughs> While trying to persuade a cobbler's apprentice to have sex with him, Pope Boniface VIII, who reigned from 1294 to 1303, was said to have assured the boy that two men having sex was, quote-unquote, no more sin than rubbing your hands together. Which, doesn't that just give you the chills? Ugh. Paul II, who reigned from 1464 to 1471, died of a heart attack while having sex with a page, according to many rumors. He was succeeded by Sixtus IV, who kept a nephew as his lover, and made the nephew a cardinal at age 17. The list is endless. Honestly, some sound like anti-gay propaganda, while other rumors are heavily supported and showcase a corrupt leadership. In 2007, Monsignor Tommaso Sinico met a young man in an online chat room and invited him to his Vatican office. In their conversation, Sinico denied that gay sex was a sin. He touched the man's leg and said, quote unquote, you're so hot. Oh my god. But little did he know, this meeting was being secretly videotaped and was later broadcast on Italian television. But get this, Stanico tried to play it off, saying that he wanted to see how priests were ensnared by the gays, and he was just pretending to be gay. <laughs> Isn't that so ridiculous and hilarious? <laughs> That's what he came up with? 
Oh my, I, yeah, I, I sucked a penis for research, religious research. What an asshole. Later, another scandal in 2010 happened when Italian police wiretaps accidentally caught a papal usher and gentleman of his holiness, Angelo Balducci, hiring male prostitutes over the phone through a Nigerian member of a Vatican choir. The choir member was dismissed and Balducci was convicted on corruption charges. You see, it gets trickier when technology comes into play. You can't hide as well. This dualistic experience, do as I say, not as I do, is very much a part of the Catholic Church tradition and Christian tradition in general. That philosophy of dualism I mentioned earlier, the philosophy that separates the physical from the spiritual, that is what we see happening here, which should show us that that philosophy and the rules surrounding it are not working. They are not sustainable. Yet, still, after thousands of years of examples, Christians still promote purity culture. They uphold the patriarchy and sexism, and therefore they uphold homophobia, giving us priests and people in power living dual existences, something I've talked about in my own experience, seeing ministers in my own family say one thing behind the pulpit and say something completely hypocritical at home. In the Vanity Fair article by Michael Joseph Gross, he dives into this dualistic lifestyle of gay clergy and interviewed men who had been in the Vatican and even some that were currently in the Vatican. I am going to read an excerpt from the article that I found particularly fascinating. Gay saunas are good places to meet other gay priests and monks. The best times to find clerics at the saunas are late afternoons or evenings on Thursdays or Sundays after Mass. Some gay celibate clerics use the saunas not for sex, but to experience a sense of fellowship with others like themselves. One calls his sauna visits, quote-unquote, something to confirm myself as I am. Rome has few gay bars, and John Moss, the American owner of the largest and oldest one, says that the rise of internet cruising, combined with the Vatican's crackdown on gay priests, has decimated his gay clerical clientele. He's quoted saying, There used to be so many seminarians, such beautiful men, who came to the bar, and we would even get hired to take parties to them in some of the religious houses. Now, there's nobody. All that said, no one has sex with other residents of his own monastery, a former monk told me. Because it is like a big brother house, everyone knows everything. In one way, I want to pity those men. The men that feel like they must live secret lives. But then knowing all the horrific things they are also simultaneously supporting and even creating... I honestly lose all empathy. It reminds me of the countless corrupt and closeted male leaders of conversion therapy organizations that have been outed in the U.S., and it is challenging for me to find any kind of empathy for people like that. The gruesome child abuse that has taken place is just disgusting. I really have no words. Using God, using religion, using fear to prey on people— 
Is there much worse than that? Sexual abuse in the Catholic Church has been reported as far back as the 11th century. But now I want to be very clear about the reason I bring child abuse into the conversation at all. This abuse, that has been both homosexual and heterosexual in nature, gets lumped into homosexuality by ignorant people. But this does not have anything directly to do with homosexuality. Ultimately, I believe the core of this shows us how fucked up purity culture is. It does not work. It just doesn't. And results in fucked up shit like this. The church, not taking responsibility for their actions, then turns around and lumps our modern concept of homosexuality into the word sodomy, when the story of Sodom was about abuse and rape, something they themselves are guilty of. I believe the abuse showcases the corrupt leadership within the Catholic Church, zero concern for actual morality, and shows us how toxic purity culture is, which all collectively does affect the Church's stance on homosexuality. In 2002, an investigation by the Boston Globe led to widespread media coverage of the issue in the United States. If you haven't seen the movie Spotlight, I highly suggest it. It dives into the abuse that was exposed in Europe, Australia, Chile, and the United States, reflecting worldwide patterns of long-term abuse, as well as the church's hierarchy's pattern of regularly covering up reports of abuse. According to a 2004 research study by John Jay College of Criminal Justice for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, 4,392 Catholic priests and deacons in active ministry between 1950 and 2002 have been plausibly neither withdrawn nor disproven, accused of underage sexual abuse by 10,667 individuals. Until recently, how the church would handle rumors was to simply move the said abuser to a new location, not stopping them not punishing them, just moving them. Now with social media and more public news access, the church has been forced to at least pretend to care. On the 13th of May, 2017, Pope Francis acknowledged that the Vatican had a 2,000 case backlog of sexual abuse cases. words from the decree just released by the Vatican in March. How? How can they say that while protecting pedophiles and rapists? As I stated last episode, it's pretty simple. The protection of pedophiles and rapists benefits them. However, supporting the LGBTQ plus community outside of the church does not seem to benefit them enough. The conclusion I have come to is kind of odd and honestly a little unsettling. The church really doesn't have that much history surrounding homosexuality, directly anyway. It does, however, have a long history with sexism, so of course homophobia has followed. 
But when the word sodomy was used in the past, it was not about homosexuality directly. It was about procreation. Homophobia has simply been a byproduct. For anyone who is homophobic, then they are also sexist and misogynistic. A person cannot be homophobic and also believe in gender equality. It does not logically work out on paper. This fact is actually what really helped my relationship with my parents. As I talked about in episode 5, the things that ultimately changed their minds was not me talking explicitly about homophobia. It was about sexism and racism. When they understood how grotesquely sexist and racist their religious institution was, they could not defend it anymore. And as we've learned from this episode, if we are able to move past sexism, then we will move past homophobia and transphobia. I, I, I think it's so blatantly clear that sexism is truly what we're dealing with when we look at transphobia. Our society would not be transphobic if we were not sexist. It would not be. The arguments against trans people are sexist arguments. There's no way to deny that. And this is why the history is so important. On the surface, it may seem like church is just one big anti-LGBTQ plus institution, and sure, it is, but it's only because it is a sexist institution. If we want to fight for equality, we have to tackle gender inequality first. I know this has been a heavier episode than most, but it's important. And I hope you were able to listen, build up some steam, and are more prepared to fight for justice for everyone. If you think this two-part episode would be helpful for someone or multiple people you know, please share it with them and discuss it. I think these topics are actually really terrific for group discussions. If you do, please reach out to me and I can try to give you notes to help lead the discussion. And of course, if you did enjoy it, please do leave a positive review. It is so very helpful. And make sure you are subscribed and following. You can always reach out to me on social media at Have a Blessed Gay on all the platforms or at the email in the show notes. Don't be shy. Definitely say hi. In the meantime, if you're struggling with a dualistic existence, you're a victim of abuse, or are struggling emotionally or spiritually, know that I always post helplines in the show notes, so please do check them out if you need to. You are not alone. And just remember this. You are special. You are purposeful. And you are fucking beautiful. Have a blessed day, y'all.